week ago Thursday it was, in a New York bar called Happy Jack's. On the bar was a classified ad section of a newspaper. On the newspaper was a glass of beer. And behind the glass of beer was a tin-horned horse player named Charlie Raymond. As you can tell by that opening, this episode's main character is also the narrator. Now, this technique may harken back to this story's radio show roots, or it may be that Harold Swanton, the writer of this episode, really likes narration. Because the other time we've encountered narration in an episode, it was written by Harold Swanton, too. That was episode number two, Premonition, in which our main character narrator, Kim Stanger, played by John Forsyth, discovers in the twist at the end that he is the killer he's seeking. This time around, the twist isn't who the killer is, but who the killer killed. Welcome to Episode 9 of Presenting Alfred Hitchcock Presents, presented by the Ann Arbor District Library. I'm Al Scherzma, and just in this small opening, I've already spoiled a couple of things. I will spoil plenty more, not just of this episode, but of some radio shows and Alfred Hitchcock's film, The Paradigm Case. So you've been warned. Before we actually get to Charlie Raymond's narration, we, of course, have our usual Hitchcock intro. In this case, he is standing in front of a slot machine, his back to us, and he pulls the handle. He doesn't win, so he hits the machine on the side to no avail. Then he turns to us. My last quarter. Then he plays again. This time he wins. Three oranges. The camera pulls back to show a desk with a fruit bowl on it, and he adds the oranges to it. I've been frightfully lucky this evening. Now, if they would invent a machine that I could play using orange seeds and cherry pits, I'd be perfectly happy. All the foregoing will immediately seem justified, appropriate, clever, and even dignified when I tell you that tonight's narrative is about a gambler. It is called the long shot. If you like to bet when the odds are high and the risks great, you will appreciate our hero's philosophy. But if you prefer to put your money on a sure thing, listen to this friendly tip about a highly touted product. So here's the long shot. First broadcast, November 27th, 1955. Starring Peter Lawford and John Williams. Written by Harold Swanton. And directed by Robert Stevenson. Now, we've seen Robert Stevenson's direction before in episode four, Don't Come Back Alive. And we talked about him back then, so I'm not going to go over his bio. I will say, however, that he directs five more episodes after this one. His next being The Derelicts, episode 19. Now, there's nothing particularly special about the directing in this episode, except for the opening shot. Now, I'm going to play Charlie's opening narration again, extending it a little bit further than where I left off. But first, I want to describe what the camera is doing and showing while Charlie is speaking over it. We start on the inside of a bar with the camera pointing out towards the entrance. There's lots of extras about people entering the bar, people sitting at tables. The camera pulls back to show two people crossing from left to right. As they cross, the camera follows them across the bar 
to the newspaper to which Charlie refers. The glass of beer is put on the paper. A plume of cigarette smoke comes down from the person at the bar, whose arms are currently the only thing we see. The camera moves up with the beer as a hand grabs the beer and goes up, bringing us up to show Charlie's mouth and a close-up of Charlie. Camera stays on him for a bit as he smokes and thinks. Then he sees something and gets up. The camera follows as he goes past another guy at the bar. It is only when he turns up the radio and the camera shows us the radio that we get our first cut and the opening shot ends. This is the sort of active camera extended shot that was near and dear to Hitchcock's heart. So you have to wonder if that's why Robert Stevenson did it. Now that we've described the camera action, here's Charlie's narration again. A week ago Thursday it was, in a New York bar called Happy Jack's. On the bar was a classified ad section of a newspaper. On the newspaper was a glass of beer. And behind the glass of beer was a tin-horned horse player named Charlie Raymond. That's me. I'd had a terrible run of luck at the track. Started out the season with 5,000, dropped down to train fare, and made the fatal mistake of trying to get healthy in one fell swoop on a three-to-one shot named Cinnabar. A week ago Thursday it was, he begins. So we know that the entire episode is a flashback with Charlie telling the story to someone, presumably the police. That's at least whom he's telling it to in the radio show, which we'll get to a little later. Now, those familiar with popular culture, Hollywood, movies, and the like of the 50s and 60s will recognize that very distinctive voice as belonging to Peter Lawford, even without having the opening credits. But it should be pointed out that in the opening credits, Peter Lawford gets his own title card. So after Hitchcock finishes his introduction and the music comes up, we see Peter Lawford. That's it. A title card all his own followed by a second title card that reads, In the Long Shot, and below that, also starring John Williams. So Peter Lawford earns an elevated status not seen before and not seen by people such as Joseph Cotton. So why is that? Well, maybe it just comes out of the necessity of not wanting to rank Peter Lawford and John Williams on the same tier. It could be that Peter Lawford had a really good agent. They got him a really good contract. Or maybe it's something about Lawford's career in life itself. So let's take a look at Peter Lawford now. There was a certain point in his career when Peter Lawford was sort of known for being famous for being famous. But he is an actor with quite a few credits. He was born in London. His father was a World War I hero. And uh, his parents and he moved to Paris when he was very young. He got into acting very early. He was seven years old when he made his acting debut in the film Poor Old Bill. But according to IMDb, his parents were not married when he was born. So as a result of that scandal, they fled to America. Now, when he was young, Peter injured his arm badly enough that it was slightly deformed throughout the rest of his life. This prevented him from being drafted into World War II, which was fortunate for his career. He and his parents were in Florida, living in Florida at the outbreak of World War II. The problem was their money was in Britain, And Britain, being at war, their assets were frozen. So Peter, who was then 16 years old, took a job parking cars. According to Wikipedia, when he saved enough money for the fare, he went back to Hollywood, where he supported himself working as a theater usher until he began to get film work. Now, with World War II, 
there was an increase in interest in war stories about Britain, and since Lawford was not drafted, he was available and in demand to play mostly British military personnel in all sorts of films. In 1946, he won a modern screen magazine reader's poll as the most popular actor in Hollywood. The popular actors of the time, Clark Gable, Jimmy Stewart, and so on, had been away at the war. So Peter Lawford benefited from their absence. Eventually, he appeared in such films as Mrs. Miniver, Sahara, The White Cliffs of Dover, The Picture of Dorian Gray, Easter Parade, and the 1949 version of Little Women. He is early into television, appearing in three episodes of the Ford Television Theater, and then starring in the situation comedy Dear Phoebe. Dear Phoebe. Starring Peter Lawford. In which he plays a newspaper man who writes the Dear Phoebe Lovelorn column and gets to do a little narration, as he does in this episode of Hitchcock. Does a fine job decorating most of the world for the holiday season. But here in Southern California, we have to give her a helping hand. The show only lasted one year. So, what else was going on in Peter Lawford's life at the time? Well, the year before, 1954, Peter Lawford married Patricia Kennedy, sister of then Senator John F. Kennedy. Was this enough to give him enough celebrity? To get this extreme billing on Hitchcock? Who knows? In any event, a couple of years after the Hitchcock episode, Peter Lawford starred in yet another television series. This one was the TV version of The Thin Man. The Thin Man. Starring Peter Lawford as Nick... That one lasted a little bit longer than Dear Phoebe, two seasons. Now, around this time, according to Wikipedia, Peter Lawford had been told the basic story of the film that was to become Ocean's Eleven by director Gilbert Kay, who heard the idea from a gas station attendant. Lawford eventually bought the rights in 1958, imagining William Holden in the lead. But Frank Sinatra became interested in the idea, and then a variety of writers worked on the project. And before you knew it, Sinatra had invited Peter Lawford to join the Rat Pack, and Lawford appeared in the film Ocean's Eleven. In April of 1960, Peter Lawford became an American citizen. This allowed him to vote for the first time, and he, of course, voted for his brother-in-law in the presidential election. He and other members of the Rat Pack helped campaign for Kennedy, and Frank Sinatra, according to Wikipedia, famously dubbed him Brotherin Lawford at this time. Now, Lawford was originally cast in the film Robin and the Seven Hoods, a Rat Pack film, but he had a falling out with Frank Sinatra. Again, according to Wikipedia, the break stemmed from a scheduled visit to Sinatra's home by President Kennedy during a 1962 West Coast trip. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, who was long concerned about Sinatra's rumored ties with underworld figures, encouraged the president to change his plans and stay at Bing Crosby's home, which it was maintained could provide better security for the president. The change came at the last minute, and Sinatra had made extensive arrangements for the promised and eagerly awaited presidential visit, including the construction of a helipad. Sinatra was furious, believing that Lawford had failed to intercede with the Kennedys on his behalf, and he banished him from the Rat Pack. 
They spoke again in December of 1963 when Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped and Frank Sinatra Sr. was looking for Robert Kennedy's help. RFK was then Attorney General. This was not good timing since JFK had been assassinated just a couple of weeks before. So I don't believe RFK helped Sinatra with this. In any event, he did turn to the FBI. He put together the ransom money. There were three men who had planned this kidnapping of Frank Sinatra Jr. And while two of them went to pick up the money, the third one got cold feet and decided to free Frank Jr. Not long after that, all three of the men were captured and convicted of the crime. Most, but not all, of the ransom money was recovered. Peter Lawford and Patricia Kennedy were divorced in February 1966 and Lawford married his second wife, Mary Rowan, in October 1971. Mary Rowan was the daughter of comedian Dan Rowan, known for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, a show Peter Lawford appeared on 10 times. Peter! Yes? Why do birds always come back in the spring? So they won't miss the hunting season. <laughs> and it may be where he met his future wife. Unfortunately, Lawford and Rowan were separated after two years and divorced in 1975. In 1976, Peter Lawford married actress Deborah Gould. And they separated two months after marrying, and they divorced in 1977. He was married a fourth time, this time to Patricia Seaton in 1984, not too long before his death. In the last couple of decades of his career, Lawford bounced back and forth between movies and television. He appears in the film Advising Consent, Harlow, The Oscar, The April Fools, and They Only Kill Their Masters. He also appears in the television series The Wild Wild West, I Spy, Bewitched, The Doris Day Show, Fantasy Island, and he appears as Ellery Queen in the 1971 made-for-TV movie Ellery Queen, Don't Look Behind You, based on the novel Cat of Many Tales. Ellery? Anybody home? Uncle, you better stop using that rusty pass key that you swung with from Jack the Ripper. You're going to be in trouble. Oh, enter, unwelcome guest. I want you to meet a good friend of mine, my videotape editor. This is Miss... Miss, uh... Price. Miss Price. This is my uncle, Inspector Queen. Hi. Hi. You may have recognized Harry Morgan's voice there, playing Inspector Queen, who is Ellery's uncle in this show, rather than his father. Possibly because Peter Lawford has an accent and Harry Morgan doesn't? I don't know. We will see him again but quite a ways down the line. He's in the Alfred Hitchcock Hour episode, Crimson Witness, 10 years after this one, 1965. That's Peter Lawford, not Harry Morgan. Although we will see Harry Morgan, too, in season five of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, an episode called Anniversary Gift. Peter Lawford died on Christmas Eve, 1984, at the age of 61. Wikipedia says he had suffered from kidney and liver failure after years of substance abuse, his body was cremated and his ashes were interred at Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery. Owing to a dispute between his widow and the cemetery, Lawford's ashes were removed from the cemetery in 1988 and scattered into the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California by his widow, Patricia Seton Lawford, who invited the National Enquirer tabloid to photograph the event. All right, so you may recall that Charlie Raymond has put his money on a horse called Cinnabar. Let's find out how that horse does. Cinnabar, Rondelay, and Sully's girl. And making his bet now is Battle Flag. Battle Flag coming up fast on the outside. It's Cinnabar and Battle Flag. Cinnabar is fading. 
Cinnabar is dropping back. It's battle flag, Cinnabar and Rondelay. Battle flag, Cinnabar and Rondelay. At the finish, it's battle flag, Bayonet. Then Cinnabar, Rondelay, and Sully's girl. So Cinnabar loses, and the camera holds on Charlie's face to see his slight wince. The bartender tries to make him feel better, but then the bar phone rings almost immediately. How you can't win them all. Yeah. Uh, just a minute, I'll see if he's here. It's Dutch Schroeder. Uh-oh, it's Dutch Schroeder, the bookie, looking for the money that Charlie owes. But first, let's look at the bartender for a moment. The bartender here is played by Tim Graham, and we're going to see him again in our very next episode, episode 10, The Case of Mr. Pelham, in which he'll play a lawyer. Plus, he's in Ebbett and Costello Go to Mars, and he is Sheriff Wiley Payne in The Brain from Planet Eros, which I always thought since I was a kid when I first saw it was called The Brain from Planet Atrus, which I still think is a better title. Tim Graham died in 1979 at the age of 74. Now, what about Dutch Schroeder? Well, the bartender lies for Charlie, telling Dutch that Charlie just left probably on his way to pay his money. But Charlie's in a bad way. All I had in the world was a $20 bill, some odd change, and a pair of Zircon cufflinks. According to Diamonds.net, Zircon, in 2001, was worth $75 per carat. Top Gem Blues can reach $200 per carat. They were worth much less in 1955, I'm sure. And I was in hock to Dutch for $4,200. In half an hour, Dutch would be suspicious. By tonight, he'd be hunting me. And then Charlie sees something, an ad in the newspaper, highlighted by the ring caused by his beer glass, which was placed right over the ad. It's a really nice effect. And the ad reads, London are wanted. Englishmen will pay $150 and expenses to fellow countrymen, preferably Londoner, in return for services as driver on motor car trip to San Francisco. Phone Murray Hill 3, 8098. Since we now have the technology and the luxury to freeze the picture and look at things like this ad in detail, I can tell you that it doesn't say motor car trip, it just says car trip, and that the word countryman is misspelled. Now, in case this Murray Hill business is confusing to you, this is from Wikipedia. A telephone exchange name or central office name was a distinguishing and memorable name assigned to a central office. It identified the switching system to which a telephone was connected. A widely used numbering plan was a system of using two letters from the central office name with four or five digits. The two-letter five-number system became the North American standard as customer-dialed long-distance service came into use in the 1950s. Now, Murray Hill was a New York exchange, and to dial Murray Hill, you used the first two letters of Murray, even though Hill was also capitalized. You still get these letters on keypads now, same as they were then. So if you're dialing Murray Hill 38098, the phone number is 683-8098. Charlie gets up and heads to the phone booth in the bar. The way he figures it, this job from the classified is... The perfect way to get out of town. And about the only job in the world I was qualified for. After all, I'd spent the best part of a disreputable life in London and will be there still if it hadn't been for an unfortunate misunderstanding about my signature on a check. Hello? I'm inquiring about the advertisement in tonight's newspaper. Oh, yes. My name's Walker Hendricks. How do you do, sir? My name is Charles Folliot Raymond. Charles Folliot... I take it you're a Londoner, Mr. Raymond. No, very definitely, sir. 
lived there all my life. Except, of course, for Eaton Oxford. That's capital. Now, how about coming around to my hotel for a whiskey and soda in about an hour's time? I'm at the Weldon. A whiskey and soda? Nothing I'd like better, sir. That voice on the phone is another very recognizable one. It belongs to John Williams, our co-star. Now, John Williams is not the composer of Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind and so on. John Williams is the actor born in England in 1903. Like Peter Lawford, Williams began his acting career at a young age. He appeared on the English stage in Peter Pan, The Ruined Lady, and The Fake, all in 1916. In 1924, he moved to New York, where he soon was a frequent and familiar presence on the Broadway stage. In 1953, he won a Tony Award for Best Supporting or Featured Actor in the Dramatic Category for his role as Chief Inspector Hubbard in Dial M for Murder. In 1954, when Hitchcock adapted the play, he cast John Williams in the same role. What's he doing? He's wondering why that key doesn't fit. He's going around to the back entrance. He stopped again. He's looking at the handbag now. He's trying to remember when he put the key back in there. Now, this wasn't the first time, however, that Williams was in a Hitchcock film. Prior to that, he appeared in The Paradigm Case as Barrister Collins, who takes over the case from Gregory Peck at the end of the film. He has lots of screen time, but he has no lines. Still, we're going to get back to that a little bit later. After Dial M for Murder, Hitchcock uses Williams again, this time in To Catch a Thief. H.H. Houston, Lloyds of London. Am I to understand you're the man who knows everyone who owns the best jewellery in this vicinity? We insure most of the important pieces. Insurance. That's gambling, isn't it? Well, shall we say betting? He's also, by the way, in an episode of the TV series, It Takes a Thief. John Williams appears in ten total episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, if you count the three parts of I Killed the Count as three, which I do. He also plays Shakespeare wonderfully, in the Twilight Zone episode, The Bard. Just as a point of interest, Gleep, what do you got against Stanislavski? What have I got against this personage, Stanislavski? You. That's with Burt Reynolds doing his Marlon Brando impersonation. And John Williams appears in two Night Gallery episodes, The Doll and The Caterpillar which is one of the best-remembered episodes of the series. He's in the thriller episode Yours Truly, Jack the Ripper, and he took over from Sebastian Cabot as the butler on the TV series Family Affair. We'll see him again in Back for Christmas, episode 23, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Near the end of his life, John Williams was known as the man on the 120 Music Masterpieces from Columbia House commercial. I'm sure you recognize this lovely melody as Stranger in Paradise. But did you know that the original theme is from the Polyvetsian Dance Number no. 2 by Borodin? According to Wikipedia, this became the longest-running, nationally-seen commercial in U.S. television history, running for 13 years, from 1971 to 1984. In fact, it lasted longer than John Williams himself, who died in 1983 at the age of 80. So Charlie goes to the Weldon to meet Walker Hendricks. And unfortunately, from this point on, after that great beginning, the directing gets much more conventional. Walker Hendricks grills Charlie about London, and Walker Hendricks walks with a limp, something that will become important later on. And you, uh, you want to go to San Francisco? Any particular reason? Are you at all interested in horse racing, Mr. Hendricks? 
No, I can't say I am particularly. Been to Ascot, of course. You are, I take it. Quite. Bay Meadows is opening next week. That's the race course just outside San Francisco. It's nothing like Ascot, I'm afraid. <laughs> Naturally. You do know London. You're not making this up. <laughs> Mr. Hendricks, I could take you on a cook's tour from Kensington Gardens to the East India Docks with my eyes shut. <laughs> oh, you won't have to go that far, Mr. Raymond. From this point, Mr. Hendricks opens up more towards Charlie. Perhaps you wondered about my advertisement. That was a bit unusual, yeah. Well, I'm extremely depressed with America, frankly. Never in the world would have come here if it hadn't been for urgent business in San Francisco. I don't believe I could face the prospect of a trip across this country alone. And I hope to find a fellow Britisher in the same fix. Sympatico, you know. <laughs> Lots of chat about jolly old London. Greatest city in the world, right? No question about it. That phone call is someone inquiring after the ad, and Hendricks tells them that the position is already filled. We again get a nice close-up of Charlie's face as he lights a cigarette and smiles. This leads us into some nice 1950s travelogue music. So, bright and early the next morning, we were off to San Francisco, my simpatico companion and I. When he said chat about jolly old London, he meant chat about jolly old London. There's lots of chat about jolly old London. At one point, they talk about the Algerian Cafe on Dean Street in Soho. And Raymond says, Do you remember the proprietors? What was her name? Big French woman. Celeste. Celeste is still there, too. Saw her not long before I left. Really? Yes. I was under the impression she died a few years ago. You don't say. How could I have her? Her daughter. She had a daughter who looked exactly like her. You probably met her. Oh, yeah. So there's the first tip-off to us that something is amiss. But the John Williams character is so affable that Charlie gives him a pass. In fact, Charlie gives him the excuse for his slip-up. They travel along across the country. This is in the early days of the interstate, so you don't see them on highways. They're mostly traveling through towns. And the talk continues. So much so that Charlie remarks, His one aim in life, apparently, was to become the only walking guide to London in the world. This dear, simple Britisher who had dedicated himself heart and soul to a city. Again, Charlie comes close to deducing what's going on, but he sees Hendricks as a dear, simple Britisher. As much as Charlie is engaging in a con game, he can't see Hendricks in the same light. So they stop in a hotel, and while there, Charlie asks for an advance on his salary. He watches in the mirror as Hendricks unlocks his briefcase and pulls out a wad of bills. So Hendricks has the same flaw as Charlie. He can't see Charlie as a con man or a criminal, and he opens up his briefcase and reveals this wad of bills while Charlie's in the next room. By the way, it's mentioned at this point that wherever they are, it is almost 600 miles to Kansas City. That may mean that they're in Cincinnati, which is 589.4 miles from Kansas City. They head to the hotel bar together, and Charlie runs into Tommy DeWitt. Seems like an odd coincidence to run into somebody in a hotel bar in Cincinnati. And it works much better in the radio show, as we'll see, where Charlie steers Hendricks to a bar in Chicago, which he knows is frequented by horse players. In any event, Tommy is there, and he and Charlie have a chat. You're in trouble. Oh, you've been on the phone in New York, huh? Just talked to Dutch. 4,200 bucks, he says. You can get it any time. You want to make it fast? Oh. Palmetto track next week. A sure thing. Oh, sure. It's so nice right now. 
Five hundred will get you ten grand on a poly, but it's got to be five hundred, no less. What's with that? Thank you. I'm driving it to San Francisco. Dump him. We'll leave for Florida tomorrow. Has he got any money? Are you sure this can't lose? This, debt, and taxes. I'll call you in five minutes, tell you where to meet me. I love how Tommy and Charlie have such little regard for Hendrix. That Tommy says, what's with that? And Charlie says, I'm driving it to San Francisco. Tommy is played by Charles Cantor, who was a regular on radio in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, sometimes totally more than 40 shows a week, according to Wikipedia. He was Socrates Mulligan on the Fred Allen show in the Allen's Alley segments. Uh, uh, <laughs> what is your name, sir? Uh, Socrates Mulligan. Socrates Mulligan. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm conducting a coffee yeah, service. Yeah, I know. The wall just in. I heard you talking to Mrs. Nussbaum. Well, have you, uh, have you done anything about the coffee suggestions? Well, uh, like everybody else, I tried both methods. Well, what, uh, what luck did you have? The president's coffee tasted like something you'd get if you milked a rubber reindeer. Listen to the laugh that gets. I suspect that that's a classic example of you had to be there. Anyway, Charles Cantor was also known as Clifton Finnegan on the Duffy's Tavern radio show. Finnegan, how come you're so excited over Billy Burke? Sure, oh, after all, she's an attractive dame and I'm an edible bachelor. <laughs> edible. <laughs> Finnegan, the word is illegible. Ah, oh, it's illegible as somebody who can't read. Can you read? No. Touche. <laughs> Charles Cantor parlayed Clifton Finnegan into his first screen role. He was in the film version of Duffy's Tavern. And Duffy's Tavern, by the way, starred Ed Gardner as Archie, a role he played on radio, TV, and the movie and whose only other screen credits on IMDb are two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. But he also debuted as a dramatic actor in the suspense radio show The Palmer Method, about more later. Charles Cantor was mostly in comedies like Blondie, The Bob Cummings Show, The Red Skelton Hour, Make Room for Daddy, The Dick Van Dyke Show, The Jack Benny Program, and The Lucy Show. He's in three episodes of Damon Runyon Theater, which seems perfect for his look and his voice. And he's in two more episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. The next is And So Died Rhea Bushinska, episode 20. Charles Cantor died in 1966 at the age of 68. Now Charlie sneaks back into his hotel room and opens up Hendrick's briefcase. He pulls a bunch of documents out and the wad of money, which he sticks in his inside coat pocket. But then he looks at the papers... And he reads, We wish to thank you for the patience you have shown in the matter of your late uncle's estate. Since you are completely unknown personally to either relatives or legal counsel in the United States, it is necessary to establish your identity. Therefore, we must ask you to present yourself at our offices with the documents requested in our previous letter. The legacy of $200,000 may then be released to you without further delay. 
cordially, Matthew Kelson, attorney at law. All right, so I'm going to play the same trick I did with the classified ad and freeze the screen, and we see several things. First of all, your late uncle's estate, the word uncle's, is missing an apostrophe, so it looks like he has more than one uncle. The word counsel, as in legal counsel, is spelled C-O-U-N-C-I-L, like a city council. You'd think a lawyer or his secretary would know better. The word identity is spelled wrong. The letter does not say, present yourself to our offices with the documents requested in our previous letter. It says, we must ask you to present yourself at our office the documents requested in our previous. And then the word therefore is spelled T-H-E-R-E-F-O-R instead of T-H-E-R-E-F-O-R-E. But that, turns out, is not a mistake at all. As Grammarly.com explains it, therefore, with an E, is an adverb that means as a consequence, as a result, or hence. Therefore, without an E, is an adverb that means for that or for it. In other words, therefore, we must ask you to present yourself at our office with the documents means for it to establish your identity. We must ask you to present yourself at our offices with the documents. And that's exactly what Charlie intends to do. So he puts the papers and the money back, and he tells Tommy he couldn't find any money, and the deal is off. He stays with Hendricks. Now, this is an interesting decision. We've been told along the way that Charlie is a rat. He's written bad checks in London. He's stiffing Dutch. But is he actually somebody that would go out and kill somebody else? Well, apparently for $200,000, he would. There's a nice bit after Charlie makes the decision back at the bar. How much longer before I'm in San Francisco? Oh, four or five days. Barring accidents, of course. And Charlie gives Hendricks one of those looks after barring accidents, of course. You know the kind of look I'm talking about. So eventually they end up in Denver. And while they're driving through Denver, Charlie learns something new about Walker Hendricks. What next stop to Denver? Nothing much till Salt Lake City. Salt Lake City? Mm. I have an aunt there, you know. No, I didn't. I thought you didn't know anyone on this side of the Atlantic. I don't count on Margaret. Never seen her, don't intend to. She's a sister of my mother's, married a man named Stoddard. She's probably an American by now. Probably a crashing bore, too. An aunt he'd never seen. A perfect opportunity for a test run. So Charlie goes to Margaret Stoddard's house, making sure to limp in imitation of Walker Hendricks, and introduces himself to her as her nephew. Margaret Stoddard is played by Gertrude Hoffman. She was born in Heidelberg, but raised in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She began her film career in German films, however, ending it in 1923 in order to raise her two daughters and a son. But then she returned to the screen in 1933 at the age of 62 to perform in American films. She's in Foreign Correspondent, and in Suspicion. She's the great-grandmother of actress Carolyn Bliss, who played Moneypenny in the Timothy Dalton James Bond films License to Kill and The Living Daylights. And Gertrude Hoffman died in 1968 at the age of 96. So how does Charlie's impersonation go off? It was a complete triumph. Well, thank you for the tea out, Margaret. I'll be turning up on your doorstep another one of these days. It was lovely to see you, Walker. Come again soon. Poor Aunt Margaret. Walker is not going to come again soon. He's not going to come again ever. So now it's time for Charlie to put his plan into action. 
He times it out so that the driving hits the Nevada desert at night. And he pulls into the desert while Hendricks is sleeping. When Hendricks wakes up, wondering what's going on, he tells him they're lost. And then he talks him into spending the night outside of the car rather than searching for the highway during the evening. So Hendricks sleeps behind the car with his briefcase as his pillow. And then Charlie makes his move. There's a light over there. I think I'll drive over and find out where we are. I'll come with you. If it's a hotel, I'm going to get a room with a nice, comfortable bed. Order up eggs and bacon, toast lightly brown on one side only, and a pot of tea. No tea bag. Yes, that's right. Charlie runs over Hendrix, backing over him. You don't actually see it happen. You just see Charlie in the car as he backs up. The car does go over a little bump. But I just can't help imagining what he has to do to get that briefcase, which Hendrix was sleeping on. In any event, the deed is done. Charlie has gone from being a down-on-his-luck horse player to being a murderer. But even after committing that act, he's not entirely sure he wants to go through with the whole charade. I bought the ticket, put the ante on the line. The next move was the attorney's office. Everything was there. I was all set. But the thing I felt before hit me again. It was all so pat, so neat. Laid out before me with the orderly geometry of a spider web. Maybe it was a hunch. In my business, you listen to hunches. Maybe I was just nervous. Laid out with the orderly geometry of a spider web. I love that line. So Charlie chooses to let fate decide. He's going to flip a coin. We get a nice close-up of a Liberty Silver Dollar. This appears to be the Peace Dollar, which was minted from 1921 to 1928, and again in 1934 and 1935. You can't really tell what year is on the coin. It looks like it might be 1925. So here it comes, the flip of the coin. Heads, I'd do it. Tails, I wouldn't. It came up heads. And so Charlie limps into the office of Matthew Kelson, attorney at law. Matthew Kelson is played by Robert Warwick, who was old Leadbottom in the Twilight Zone episode, The Last Flight. You sometimes forget how far back some of these older actors go in a show that is already over 60 years old. Robert Warwick was born in 1878, and he began his Broadway career as an understudy in the play Glad of It in 1903. He was a dashing male lead in silent films, and he started his own production company that produced four films until he went into World War I as an infantry captain in 1917. He has a great voice, as you'll soon hear, and he was perfect for what IMDb calls grand authoritarian character parts in films such as Mary of Scotland, the Leslie Howard Norma Shearer 1936 Romeo and Juliet, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and The Seahawk. He appears in several Preston Sturgis films, including The Great McGinty, the Lady Eve, and Sullivan's Travels. And according to IMDb, he starred in the Broadway stage show Drifting in 1922 that featured a still wet-behind-the-ears Humphrey Bogart. Bogart remembered his kindness during the play's run and 28 years later insisted on hiring Warwick to play a juicy role in his film In a Lonely Place. Robert Warwick died in 1964 at the age of 85. Yes, sir. I'm Walker Hendricks. I phoned for an appointment. Oh, yes, Mr. Kelson is expecting you. I'll tell him you're here. The secretary is played by Virginia Christine, who was previously in episode six, Salvage. You may recall in the discussion in that episode that she was Mrs. Olson in the Folgers coffee commercials. 
and that the accent she put on in those commercials was put on. As you can hear here, she does not have an accent. So she summons Matthew Kelson, who comes out and brings Charlie into his office. There's a guy in there going through a file drawer. They ignore him for now, and they get down to business. I have the documents here. There they are. And this is the correspondence, mostly with your office. I think you'll find everything there. Seem to be in order. Good. Uh, Mr. Kelson, how long do you expect it'll be before... Well, I mean, I mean, after all the red tape. The money? Yes. I'm afraid there won't be any money. I'm sorry, I don't understand. Really? Well, if there's any problem at all, I'm sure you'll find everything right here. Not quite. That voice belongs to the guy at the file cabinet. He is played by Frank Gerstel, who is in three episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and is a cop in all three. He's also a cop in three Perry Mason episodes and episodes of Leave it to Beaver, The Millionaire, Vice Raid, Bat Masterson, The Untouchables, Richard Diamond, Private Detective, Gangbusters, The George Burns and Gracie Allen Show, and more. But he's the escaped criminal in the Andy Griffith Show episode, The Manhunt. So he's not always cops. He appears in an episode of Rod Serling's The Loner, where he plays a minor, and he's in eight episodes of the Banana Splits Adventure Hour. I have no idea what he plays in those. His next Alfred Hitchcock Presents appearance is in The Deadly, episode 11 of season three. Frank Gersel died in 1970 at the age of 54. Now that he's spoken up, let's get back to what he has to say. I got one more to add to it. Walker Hendricks' death certificate. Murdered by person or persons unknown. That is, up until now. They found the body. You're all through, mister. Sergeant Mack, San Francisco homicide. I should have known better. Long shots are for chumps. You want to tell us about it? There isn't too much to tell. My name's Charlie Raymond. I answered Hendrick's ad in New York. It looked like a shoe-in. So easy. Then I drove over him in the car. Buried his body a thousand miles from nowhere. Way out in the middle of the Nevada desert. How'd they ever find him? Nevada desert? You ran over him with the car. Don't you know the details, Sergeant? What's the matter, the Nevada cops getting sloppy with their reports? We haven't had any reports from Nevada, Raymond, and no one found the body in the desert. Then how'd you know I killed him? Why did you walk with a limp when you came in here? Because Hendricks walked with a limp, of course. Oh, come on, Sergeant, how do you know I killed Hendricks? You didn't. Walker Hendricks, the real Walker Hendricks, was shot in New York and tossed into the East River. We got a tip it was a con man called English Jim who did it. English Jim is the man who walked with a limp. He obviously hired you to keep him up to date with how things were in London. You see, it was English Jim we expected to see here today. But it seems he only made it as far as the Nevada desert. Thank you for putting us straight, Raymond.
We started with a close-up of Charlie Raymond at the bar, looking very somber, even before his horse loses. We end with a close-up of Charlie Raymond laughing at the irony of it all. He's in a lot worse shape now than he was at the beginning of the episode. Here's Martin Grahams Jr. from his book, Suspense, 20 Years of Thrills and Chills. Hitchcock decided to lure radio listeners to his new program. He used some of the same stories featured on Suspense, such as The Hands of Mr. Ottermole and Wet Saturday. A few stories written originally for Suspense were used on his television program. Harold Swanton began writing scripts for Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and on one occasion pulled his suspense script, The Long Shot, out for a rewrite for broadcast of November 27, 1955. We encountered Harold's work before in his original teleplay of Premonition, episode number two. And I think we looked at Harold a little bit in that episode, so there's no need to go over his bio. But let's look at the radio show, The Long Shot, on which he based his teleplay. It appeared on the Suspense Radio program on January 31, 1946, and it starred George Coloris as Kelly Raymond. Now, there's narration, as there often is in radio shows, but in this case, it starts with Raymond caught, and then as he speaks, it goes to a flashback. The TV episode probably begins with Raymond caught and going into a flashback as well. Remember... A week ago Thursday it was. But in the case of the episode, it's not obvious. The story is essentially the same. We get more details, more explanations of certain events. There's more details as to where they actually are along the way of the trip. They stop in Cleveland. The meeting of Tommy, in this case in Chicago, makes more sense because Raymond intentionally goes to a bar where he is reasonably certain to run into the racing crowd. Tommy also explains that they've bought some jockeys, which is why the bet down in Florida is a sure thing. When Raymond meets Aunt Margaret, she provides more details than we get in the television episode. We get Hendrix's mother's name, Cecily, and we find out that Uncle Gerald hated Cecily's husband, Walker's father. The biggest change is probably the way in which... Raymond kills the man we think is Hendrix, and the immediate aftermath of that. So here it is. I knew the time would come. My hands began to shake so much that I had to grab the wheel with both of them. I felt beneath the cushion for the wrench. It was still there. Finally, I held my breath and pulled over on the shoulder. Who? Uh, oh, I say. Oh, what, what were we stopping for? Uh, look, look. Over there against that cliff. Well. Oh. He never knew what hit him. I turned out the lights of the car and pulled the body out on the right-hand side. We hadn't passed the car for hours, so I wasn't worried much about being seen. Ah, he was heavy, pretty heavy. But I managed to carry him over my shoulder as I walked off into the brush. There was a small cave on one side of the ravine. I shoved the body in, rolled a large rock over the opening started a small landslide which completely covered the hole. Nobody could possibly find it. Clouds came back across the moon again and I got a bit off in my direction because I, I ended up on the highway at the top of a rise some distance ahead of the car. I just about reached the car when I saw something that made my stomach feel as if it was full of ice water. But there, behind my car, was another one with a seal on the door. The seal of the Nevada State Police. There was nobody in the car. 
The officer must have been wandering around looking for the driver of my car. I lifted the hood of the engine and knocked the battery cable off one of the terminals. And then I waited for a year there in the silence. And then I almost cried out in relief. The officer appeared from the other side of the highway. Hey there! What's the trouble? I don't know, officer. He just went dead on me. Having a look up the road when you arrived. Yeah, we usually check on stalled cars on this stretch. You say she went dead on you. Yes, the lights went out. The motor just died. Uh-huh, the lights went out, huh? You, uh, been under the hood? I wouldn't do much good, I'm afraid. I'm pretty green at that sort of thing. Now, let's have a look. Fine. Yeah. All right. Get the flashlight on. Oh, your battery cable's jarred loose, brother. Got a wrench? Oh, yes. Here. Right handy, huh? There you are. Say, uh, try her now. You know, that looked pretty simple. Yeah, it was. Thanks, thanks ever so much. That's okay. I love the fact that the policeman puts the battery cable back on with the murder weapon. The policeman is also very suspicious, which sort of adds to the fuel of the fear for Raymond that the body was discovered in the Nevada desert. Here's how it wraps up. Actually, I denied it until you sprang it on me that the body had been found, and then I knew it was no use. Well, why don't you say something? Still think I couldn't carry carried it off, Kelson? Well, don't just sit there with a blank look on your faces. Say something. Well, Raymond, we were holding you for the murder of Walker Hendricks, but it uh, appears we were wrong. What? What's the matter with all of you? Oh, it was a long shot, Raymond, but it was a pretty good bet. Maybe that's why both of you gambled on it. What do you mean, both of you? You and whoever you bumped off in the ladder. With whoever I... Hendricks is dead. I know he's dead. Oh, Hendricks was murdered, all right, but you didn't do it. What? You see, he beat you to it, Raymond. Who beat... Who? Your traveling companion, he wasn't. Hendricks, he wasn't even an Englishman. That's why he was pumping you so much about London. He was, uh... Oh, what do actors call it? Uh, getting up in his park. What are you talking about? I thought you found Hendricks' body in Nevada. <laughs> oh, brother. Hendricks never was in Nevada. Poor guy never left New York. The New York police turned up the real Hendricks in the East River the day after you left town, chauffeuring for the guy who killed him. I like how the cop there is the one that brings up the idea of a long shot. And I like the way he points out that both of these men were playing long shots. There's one other nice little connection that I'd like to mention before we move on. The week before this episode was aired, Suspense featured a story entitled My Dear Niece, which starred Dame Mae Whitty. You may recall that Dame Mae Whitty was one of the stars of Hitchcock's film The Lady Vanishes. She played Miss Froy, the lady who vanishes. At this point in time, Suspense would bring the star out at the end of the program to announce what the next episode would be. So here's Dame May Whitty telling us about the upcoming episode, The Long Shot. Mrs. May Whitty, as always, it's been a great pleasure to me to appear on Suspense. About next Thursday, Suspense, it seems that a gentleman of questionable reputation, a racetrack swindler who is, I believe the phrase is, hot answers an advertisement which apparently offers him free transportation from New York to California. How this leads to the committing of one murder and the uncovering of another should give that excellent actor, George Caloris, something to get his teeth into. I'll be listening, 
as I'm sure you will be next Thursday. And don't forget the March of Dimes. Thank you. According to Jack Seabrook, the radio play was performed again on June 8th, 1952, on a series called Hollywood Star Playhouse and starring David Niven. But this version seems to be lost or unavailable. And then, several years after the Hitchcock episode, it appeared again on Suspense on February 9, 1958, this time starring Herbert Marshall. The script is the same as the 1946 version, I believe, but it does have this intro by William N. Robeson, who seemed to do intros for all the suspense episodes in the late 1950s, many of which have not aged particularly well. Take this one, for example. The story with the surprise ending is one of the most difficult to write. Yet, the old switcheroo, as we call it in the trade, had fascinated readers for a long, long time before O. Henry virtually patented it. It's a difficult form because the switch must come logically out of the characters and their behavior, but it must come suddenly, unexpectedly, and at the very end of the story. You're about to hear a modern example, and we'll bet you all the red flags in communist China you can't guess the end until 25 minutes from now. Listen, listen then as Mr. Herbert Marshall stars in The Long Shot, which begins in exactly one minute from now. Yep, we'll bet you all the red flags in communist China that you can't guess the old switcheroo. Now, the double switch in this episode is quite nice, and I credit Harold Swanton for the script. But it's not necessarily original, the whole business of somebody taking on somebody else's identity and then discovering that that person is not what they seem. Here's one example from Suspense, April 20th, 1944, an episode called The Palmer Method. And this episode is, as I mentioned before, the dramatic debut of Ed Gardner from Duffy's Tavern. So I'm standing there on the railroad station with a bunch of other guys, a whole mob of us, you know. It looked like the $2 window at Belmont. Joe Palmer is a not very bright forger who escapes the law by volunteering to fight in the Spanish Civil War, not having any idea what that is all about. After his train is bombed, he kills a fellow soldier named George Padway and takes his identity because he thinks there's money in it. But it turns out that Padway is not yet another romantic seeking to fight for the Republic. He is secretly in fascist employ. So it doesn't end well for Joe. What's that tummy gun doing in there? Where's the dough? What's the matter? Are you afraid, my fascist friend? Fascist? Wait, wait a minute, what about you? Ain't you? Ah, uh, not quite. I am an agent of the Republic of Spain, Senor Padre. We have been waiting a long time to trap you, my friend, but now we bring you your reward. Helena, wait a minute, wait a minute. Tell that guy to put that gun away. You, you gotta let me explain. I, I ain't no fascist. My name ain't even Padway. My name is Joe Palmer. I'm, I'm an American guy. I just come over here to fight for your side. <laughs> The Pie Lady gives this episode an A+, partly because of the story, partly because she loves the actors. In particular, she seems a bit obsessed with Peter Lawford's dimples. She does point out a little glitch that I didn't notice. In the scene where Charlie and Hendricks are in the hotel, when Charlie first sees the briefcase with the money, Hendricks is putting on a tie. But then Charlie says he's going down to the bar for a short nightcap, which is when Hendricks says... I'll join you. So apparently Hendricks wasn't really going to go anywhere until Charlie says that. They've apparently already had dinner. In which case, as the pie lady says, what was Walker dressing for? 
Was he dressing for bed? I know Englishmen are proper, but sleeping in a tie? This is also from the pie lady. The wonderful John Williams is Walker Hendricks slash English Jim. We are going to see a ton of Williams, and you are going to love it, I swear. He's always good. Even if the episode is stupid, he's good. He's just a natural, likable actor. This character isn't as likable or funny as some, but he's still quite wonderful to watch. And I agree with that. Jack Seabrook says that Norman Lloyd called John Williams Hitchcock's favorite actor, referring to the underplaying, the subtle humor, the indirect approach that he had. Seabrook also thinks that Peter Lawford is perfect in his role, but John Williams is even better as the old Englishman who is so good a con artist that Raymond and the viewer never suspects him. Jack Seabrook also adds, it is a fine episode, like so many in the first season. Alfred Hitchcock Presents seemed to have started out as a copy of Suspense with a bigger budget and then found its own identity in subsequent seasons. The Long Shot is a classic early episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents that works for several reasons. Of course, the plot is quite good, and Swanton and director Robert Stevenson take full advantage of the visual medium to open up the story and to enhance it by doing things that could not have been done on radio. The surprise ending works so well in large part because of the performance by John Williams, who is so much the opposite of a con man and a murderer that no one would ever suspect him of being an imposter. In the end, the neophyte con artist is taken in by the veteran con man and has to confess to murder to avoid being suspected of a murder he did not commit, which is a nice point by Jack. So is there more than the twist? Well, it bears repeating that although both men may be engaged in a bet in their own way. Both bets involve murder. We don't know what English Jim's M.O. usually was. We only know he is a con man, but I'd be willing to guess he hasn't killed anyone before. Charlie is just a railbird who gets in over his head. His only goal to start is to get away from Dutch Schroeder and earn $150 on the side. And yet he's willing to become a murderer for the chance at $200,000, even though Tommy DeWitt is offering him a sure thing at the racetrack. And, as Charlie says himself, long shots are for chumps. So the question is, what does it take to turn an only slightly dishonest man into a murderer? The answer for both of these men is $200,000. But what would it take for the rest of us? Anything? In the end, after killing a man for profit, Charlie is still willing to kill that man for nothing if the coin comes up tails. He lets Chance decide whether he will benefit or not, and Chance plays him for a sucker. But that is almost secondary. This is a man who has crafted a life for himself that is guaranteed to lead him to extreme behavior. And while most of us aren't killing people for money, we still have our own versions of risk and expected payoffs. There are plenty of chumps out there trying to hit a long shot. We've had our danse macabre, but as you know, someone must always pay the piper. Fortunately, we already have such a person. In fact, several of them. These philanthropic gentlemen wish to remain anonymous, but perhaps the more discerning of our audience will be able to find a clue to their identities in what follows, after which I'll be back. When I first started this podcast, I really had no intention of dealing with Alfred Hitchcock's movies as well as the TV series. But I find after only eight episodes that I've already talked about Vertigo, The Trouble with Harry, The Lady Vanishes, Under Capricorn, shadow of a doubt, and suspicion. And I've come around to thinking that it adds something to the episodes and helps to put Hitchcock in perspective. So I now find myself looking for excuses to talk about different films. 
Here's my excuse this time. As I said, John Williams appears in 10 Alfred Hitchcock Presents episodes, which gives me plenty of opportunity to talk about the three Hitchcock films he's in. So let's talk a bit about his earliest of the three, The Paradigm Case, in which he has plenty of screen time sitting next to Gregory Peck in the trial, but has no lines, which is a shame for an actor with such a splendid speaking voice. John Williams plays a barrister named Collins, who is a colleague to Gregory Peck's Anthony Keane, who is considered one of the up-and-coming lawyers in England. That's right, in England. Gregory Peck is supposed to be English, and he does put on a smidgen of an accent, but not so it convinces you of anything. All right, let's say it right out front right now. It's not a very good film, all in all. It's talky and over-explanatory, with a pace as plotting as the trip Keane takes in a pony and trap to the manor. But the theme of love, or perhaps lust, as a destructive thing is fascinating. The gist of the story is that a lawyer falls in love with his client and nearly ruins himself as a result. Only his wife's far too good understanding saves him at the end. Everybody knows what is going on, but they're all too stuck in the strata of society to do anything about it. And that strata of society also protects the male hierarchy something we're still dealing with today, which is one reason why we have the Me Too movement. There are three loves or lusts within this story. One of them is Anthony Keene falling for his client, Mrs. Paradine, who is on trial for having murdered her husband. We assume along the way, and here come the spoilers, that Mrs. Paradine is innocent because Anthony Keene is so determined that she be innocent. But he's really only determined that she be innocent because he's fallen in love with her. It turns out that Mrs. Paradine is guilty, and she's willing to essentially admit her guilt because of the second great love in the film, Mrs. Paradine and Andre, the valet. Andre seems like the perfect victim to Anthony Keene. He tries to pin the murder on Andre. Andre fights against it, but it's clear that Andre is repulsed by the whole thing. Mrs. Paradine, because she loves Andre, exonerates Andre and therefore essentially convicts herself. There's a third love or lust in this film, and that is of the judge, who's played by Charles Lawton, and Keene's wife, Gay, who's played by Ann Todd. There's one scene, a dinner party, in which Lawton puts his hand onto Ann Todd's hand, and she rebuffs him. So when it comes to the trial, the judge stands in the way of everything that Anthony Keene wants to do. It's his payback. And in the end... The judge has dinner with his own wife, played by Ethel Barrymore, and informs her that he intends to have Mrs. Paradine hung for the murder of her husband. This is still part of the revenge. Anthony Keene has essentially been ruined because he's been rebuked by his own client in the public courtroom. As I said before, it's only Gay and Todd's love for him and determination to see him through that makes him survive. Ethel Barrymore, the judge's wife, is sympathetic to the whole situation of love and doesn't want Mrs. Paradine to perish. But the judge has no room for that. He rebukes her sympathy and essentially imposes his male hierarchy over her again. She essentially backs off, confesses that she loves him, and she's going to let him do whatever he wants. So that's a fourth love strangled and tied down by the strata of society. There's only one love that seems possibly redeeming here. That's a fifth love, Gay's love for her husband, Anthony Keene. So all of that is fascinating. And what's further fascinating about the film in the context of Hitchcock's career is that it's a lesser variation on Vertigo, in which a professional man becomes obsessed with a woman he's supposed to deal with in a professional capacity. 
It almost feels like it's a trial run, so to speak. And while Keen is saved at the end by the love and trust of his wife, Scotty doesn't get that in Vertigo. I also love that once again, in the film, there are those stares and shadows, like we see in Suspicion, Notorious, Psycho, Shadow of a Doubt, all these great black and white Hitchcock films. Now, I'm not going to play any clips of the film because John Williams doesn't have any lines, but I do want to talk just briefly about the history of the making of the film. In Hitch, The Life and Times of Alfred Hitchcock, John Russell Taylor writes, From here, Hitch would have liked to go on to make more films, which would combine this very personal exploration of the dark sides of human personality and passion with the wide popular appeal Notorious achieved. But instead, much to his resentment, he had to go back to Selznick and make for him the final film under his contract, The Paradigm Case. He was very unhappy. He did not care for the subject. It had been kicking around Hollywood for years, and no writer had managed to lick it into satisfactory dramatic shape. Selznick, who was paying Hitch $5,000 a week for doing nothing, remembered the property, bought it from MGM, and decreed that it had to be done immediately. Also, Selznick was compelled, and therefore compelled Hitch, to cast the film as far as possible from his own contract players. Hitch wanted Laurence Olivier, or possibly Ronald Coleman, as the very straight English lawyer hopelessly in love with the woman he was to defend. Instead, he got Gregory Peck, who was then big box office, but whom he thought totally wrong. As the woman herself, the mysterious Mrs. Paradine, he wanted Garbo, but Garbo was still dead set against the subject, and instead he got Alida Valley, a new European discovery of Selznick's, whom he hoped to make into a second Bergman now that his contract with the original was terminating. That was not so bad. She had the right mixture of passion and frigidity, and Hitch liked her personally to such an extent that when, years later, he visited Italy again, she was the only person that he specifically requested to see. But the third piece of imposed casting was the real disaster. As the story turns out, Mrs. Paradine did actually murder her husband because she is hopelessly in the sexual power of her husband's groom, a rough brute of a man. Hitch was forced to use another Selznick contract artist, the sleek continental charmer Louis Jordan, who could hardly have been further from what the part required. Hitch therefore went into the film in a very contrary mood, hopeless from the outset, for one of the very few times in his professional life of being able to make anything of the project he had been assigned. The later 1940s, though externally a period of advance for Hitch, in which he would become his own master, his own producer, and as near as might be the complete creator of his own films, were also a strange period of dissatisfaction and lack of direction for him. This may explain the curious aridity many sense in his films of this time, The Paradigm Case, Rope, Under Capricorn, Stage Fright. In The Dark Side of Genius, The Life of Alfred Hitchcock, Donald Spoto writes, From the start, the project was in disarray, and it engaged no one's interest very passionately. That it was finished at all was little short of miraculous, for it was certainly a lame-duck enterprise, a work assigned to a departing director by his increasingly neurotic and unself-confident producer. Selznick's worried and worrisome attitude and Hitchcock's disgust with the content and method that were forced upon him conspired to produce an uneasy atmosphere for which Hitchcock could scarcely wait to extricate himself. Donald Spoto adds, Selznick's memos at this time waver between a warm generosity and a kind of frightened stinginess. Still another indication of the producer's growing emotional crisis that year was his uncharacteristic inability to make major creative decisions. Among the titles he firmly fixed at various times from 1946 through 1947 were Mrs. Paradigm Takes the Stand, 
the lie, heartbreak, the grand passion, a question of life and death, a woman of experience, the dark hour, a crime of passion, this is no ordinary woman, guilty, the indelible stain, guilty, the woman who did the killing, hanging is easy, the accused, bewildered, the green-eyed monster, and woman and wife. He decided on the Paradigm case only hours before the film was sent for its world premiere at the Bruin Theater in Westwood Village on December 31, 1947, a fact revealed in the film's hastily inserted plain title design, which was crudely at variance with the prevailing Gothic lettering of the rest and which remains on all extent prints to this day. Here's Gregory Peck speaking about the film. Selznick was totally disorganized, but essentially a lovable man, while Hitchcock, whose manner was not quite so lovable, was totally organized. This created an unavoidable tension between them, and it clearly affected Hitchcock's attitude during production. He seemed really bored with the whole thing, and often we would look over to his chair after a take, and he would be, or pretended to be, asleep. Something was troubling him even more than during Spellbound, I think. He was never sadistic or cruel or openly unkind to anyone in the film, but he was obviously suffering terribly about something during the shooting of the Paradigm case. What was he suffering about? According to Spoto, a couple of possibilities are his imminent shift in his career to becoming his own producer and a growing awareness of the swift passage of time and of the fact of aging. Here's Ann Todd speaking about the film. I think power helped Hitchcock. Perhaps it compensated him for his feeling that he was ugly, but his power clashed with Selznick's. Hitch prepared an elaborate five-minute take in the film, up a staircase, into a room, with me and Greg Peck talking all the while. We rehearsed it with all its complications, then shot it about 30 times to get it exactly right. But then Selznick heard about it and came down to the set, demanding that the whole thing be done in the ordinary way, in short takes and intercuts. We're not doing a theater piece, Selznick cried, and that was that. Of course, Hitchcock had to give in. He knew who he could bully, but he also knew who he had to obey. Now, in the aftermath of this, Hitch started Transatlantic Pictures, his own company, which, as we know from when we talked about Under Capricorn in our seventh episode, quickly fell apart. Selznick actually ceased his independent productions soon after this film. In Spellbound by Beauty, Alfred Hitchcock and his leading ladies, Donald Spoto quotes Ann Todd again. Here she says... Hitchcock was a very complex man, an overgrown schoolboy, really, who never grew up and lived in his own special fantasy world. He had a schoolboy's obsession with sex that went on and on in a very peculiar way. He had an endless supply of very nasty, vulgar, and naughty stories and jokes. These amused him more than they amused anyone else, but I think he was really a very sad person. I feel that he wanted to be what he was not, a good-looking man like Cary Grant, and he never came to terms with what he himself was. In Alfred Hitchcock, A Brief Life, Peter Aykroyd notes, The film was not a disaster. It was a disappointment. It did not flow, largely because of the wooden performances from most of the cast. The critic of the New York Times described it as a slick piece of static entertainment. It did not succeed at the box office and lost money. When asked which film he would most readily burn, Gregory Peck replied without a beat, The Paradigm Case. In the Encyclopedia of Alfred Hitchcock, Thomas Letch notes that Hitchcock's rough cut of the film was three hours, and Selznick cut it down to two hours. It's hard to imagine watching three hours of that film. Letch also says, 
The Paradigm case warrants the complaints that James Stewart and Ingrid Bergman made about their own films for Transatlantic. The director, more interested in the camera than the performers, produced a film as visually splendid as it is dramatically inert. But after all is said and done, as Donald Spoto notes in his The Art of Alfred Hitchcock, 50 Years of His Motion Pictures, when Alfred Hitchcock is least original, he is still more interesting than most other directors. The Alfred Hitchcock Presents Season 1 DVD set, Dial M for Murder, To Catch a Thief, The Twilight Zone, the complete fourth season, containing the episode The Bard, The Dark Side of Genius by Donald Spoto, Spellbound by Beauty by Donald Spoto, and Alfred Hitchcock by Peter Aykroyd are all available at the Ann Arbor District Library. The Paradigm Case, the Columbia House commercial, the Dear Phoebe episode, the Thin Man episode, the Fred Allen episode, Duffy's Tavern episode, the 1946 and 1958 suspense versions of The Long Shot, and the suspense radio episode The Palmer Method, plus the clips from Laugh-In and Ellery Queen Don't Look Behind You, are all available online. If you would like to contact me about this episode, please email me at sherdsmaa at aadl.org. That's S-J-O-E-R-D. S-M-A-A at A-A-D-L dot O-R-G. And please put Hitchcock somewhere in the subject line. Next time, episode 10, The Case of Mr. Pelham, starring Tom Ewell, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Thank you. Our unknown benefactors will bring us back again next week at this same time. Why don't you tune in and see what little surprises we have dreamed up for you. Good night.